The scripture reading is from Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him, from, uh, ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is the word of the Lord. August 27th, 1883, sound waves ripped across the planet, the result of a volcanic eruption 10 times more powerful than an atomic bomb, tearing apart the tiny island of Krakatoa in Indonesia. Blast was heard as far away as Saigon, Manila, Bangkok, and Perth, Australia. Sky turned red like it was on fire. Rock rained down on nearby Jakarta, prompting churchgoers to think that they were experiencing wormwood from the book of Revelation. 36,000 were killed. Nearly three quarters of the island collapsed into a caldera. Apocalyptic sunsets were the norm for months. News of the explosion ricocheted around the world, uh, newly reshaped by the industrial The laying of undersea cables changed the scale and the speed at which news could be communicated. Uh, the telegraph created the first global communication network, altering forever the way that people related to each other and the way that they experienced the world that they lived in. And people were initially very optimistic about this. Technocrats believed that the telegraph, with its ability to communicate ideas and information around the world instantaneously, was going to usher in this new era of global peace and prosperity and cooperation. Uh, the most giddy among them believed that this would be the end to war. And whereas before, all kinds of news was largely confined to the village or uh, the borough or the city that you lived in, now, with this new technology, a rancher in Buenos Aires, a banker in Helsinki, a woodworker in Omaha, all would have access to news and information and social events and sporting events that took place in Delhi or in Cape Town, or to devastation that took place all the way around the world. 
It was the Victorian internet, writes Tom Standage. The information supplied by the telegraph was like a drug to businessmen who swiftly became addicted, kept in continual excitement without time for quiet and rest. And the ability to be connected opened up all kinds of new possibilities for trade, for communication, but like with most drugs, there was a side effect. This spread also a newfound sense of anxiety around the globe. Krakatoa became the world's first mass media event, capturing the imagination of the planet. Suddenly, the world as a whole, with all of its complexity and noisiness and vulnerability, was brought close. And it opened up to the world this paradox. See, because on the one hand, while this rapid growth of technology had elevated belief in human power and potential, for the first time in history, it felt like nature had been tamed. And yet the same technology that allowed the modern world this newfound sense of confidence had with the scale and the power of Krakatoa become frightened and aware of the limits of human ability and the unpredictability and the potency of nature. In an instant, the island of Krakatoa was changed. And one could make the argument that in that same instant, the world was changed as well. Because when anxiety got into the world's communication system, you got to ask, have we ever really recovered? Has that just become the ambient mood of contemporary life, kind of like the, the background elevator music that's just always humming along? At the very least, I think it's an analogy for kind of how the world feels now. I mean, the past three years with this multi-headed hydra of crises between COVID and cultural change, between political tribalism, looming environmental catastrophe, heightened awareness of racialized injustice, technological disruption, all coupled with this shifting of the global workforce and the murmurings of economic recession, we've been left with a sense of the potent chaos of the world. And we're not in as much control as we thought. Only now we wrestle with all these things in a post-Christian culture that is increasingly without reference to God as a gracious host, uh, without a God who, who sustains and, and creates the world, groaning in, in hope of renewal. Many operate as though there is no God in the machine. There's no one coming to save us, so it's time to man or woman up. And with the weight all of, that, of all that pressure, we, we hustle around late and agitated and impatient and angry. And in a world that's more connected, where, where all of that emotion gets poured into the vast social networks, anxiety begins to feed on anxiety. Edwin Freeman, whose 1997 book, A Failure of Nerve, still the best leadership book I've ever come across, he believes that part of the reason is that here in the West, we have largely built the story of our lives around the myth of inevitable progress, that all of history is moving uninterrupted toward a better future. And he's quick to note that the world is improving in a lot of key ways, technologically, economically. Poverty has fallen sharply in the world in the last 20 years. Medically, now more children have access to life-saving medicines and vaccines than ever before. And thank God, those things are trending to the positive all the time. But at the same time, he argues that we are regressing emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. In an anxious world, he writes, 
reactivity replaces reflection. The, the herding instinct that brings people together, it, it also separates them into in-group and out-group thinking. People are no longer able to talk to each other because high emotion, conflict, and retreat, those become the dominant modes of social interaction. And it becomes impossible in an environment like that to gain any sort of distance from an issue. Reaction, hurt, and insult replace contemplation and thought. And all of this works against creating the kind of people who can enter into a situation and be present in a way that interrupts the constant hum of stress and worry. In an anxious system like this, we often get the kind of leaders who prey on the cycle of anxiety to get what they want. And the only way to stop the cycle, Friedman says, is to inject a non-anxious presence right in the middle, a calm wise, well-differentiated, at peace, compassionate, a firm yet able to be active presence with a clear set of boundaries. We need that more than ever. Easier said than done. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> By now you're wondering, what on earth do Krakatoa, the telegraph, Edwin Freeman have to do with Jesus walking on water? Well, the center point of our reading in Mark this morning is this. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. The imperative do not be afraid is the single most uh, often repeated command in all of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, no command is, is uttered more frequently by God or by God's messengers than this one. Don't be afraid. Easier said than done. How is Jesus shaping disciples who don't respond to the world in anxiety and fear, but who instead follow their rabbi in becoming a non-anxious presence in the world? Well, that's the question for this morning. We pick up in Mark with his favorite word, immediately. There is an urgency to this scene when we start in verse 45, and the language in the original is unusually forceful. The disciples arrive on the scene, tired, ready to leave, but then something happens, something shifts in them. They become part of this miracle, and, and they start to, to see something different about who Jesus is. And so Jesus actually has to compel them to get in the boat and go. The biblical scholar Jim Edwards sets the scene like this. The disciples are not unsusceptible to the messianic contagion of the crowd. The language suggests that the disciples are reluctant to leave. The apparent sense is that Jesus must expeditiously remove them from the scene in order to persuade the crowd to disperse peacefully and thus avert a revolutionary groundswell. In other words, the disciples are starting to get caught up in the herding instinct, in the fervor, in the anxiety of the crowd. Maybe Jesus is the one. Maybe he is the revolutionary leader we have been waiting for, they start to think. And so Jesus pulls them away so he can pray, so they can get their heads on right. He goes away to be uninterrupted, to calibrate his mission according to the will of the one that he calls Father, and not according to the will of the anxious crowd. And so uh, simple questions from a few weeks ago. What would our lives look like if we did the same, if we moved from reactivity to engaged response? And you really got to ask yourself, what keeps you from doing so? 
After convincing them to go, Jesus sends them aside to the other side of the lake, into the Decapolis, into the region where the Gentiles live. It's the same lake that he sent them across a while back, and they were caught in a giant storm that time. And when they arrived the last time, there was a demonized man ready to greet them. So this time he tells them, you guys go ahead without me and I will catch up. You can imagine they are not stoked about this. Add to that, as I said before, the sea in Hebrew culture was the abyss. It was the the place of darkness, the place of chaos. And they're going at night. So sure enough, Murphy's Law checks out. Jesus is praying a storm overtakes them. They're pulling at the oars. The storm is so fierce. The headwinds are so strong that they are pouring everything they've got just to stay on course, just to stay afloat. And sometimes that feels just like the base level of existence in the modern world, right? I mean, sometimes you are cruising and everything is fine. Other times you are pouring everything you've got and you are getting nowhere. But get this, Mark notes that Jesus sees them at nighttime, but it's dawn before he goes out to them, which means that Jesus sees them struggling in the boat for a while. He doesn't come right away. He lets them stay in the struggle, in the fight for a while. He doesn't come to the rescue. And and isn't that what we want? When, when things go awry, when the headwinds force us to recalibrate, when we are exhausted and, sta- and straining and we are stuck, Jesus watches and prays the disciples' struggle and ache. Then verse 48, shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. Kind of a strange idea, he's about to pass them by. I mean, like, what's going on here? Is he like showing off? I mean, is he like Maverick buzzing the tower in Top Gun? For those of you who aren't old enough, there was once a movie a long time ago called Top Gun as well. I know it's very confusing. Is Jesus like racing by them? Like, I'm going to get you to the other side before you guys do, suckers. What, what, is, what is he doing here? Well, the verb translated to pass by, it actually borrows this concept from the Old Testament in these moments where God chooses to reveal himself. And in that sense, the, the language of passing by is this call back to Moses hiding in the cliff so God can pass him by, to God telling Elijah to stand on top of the mountain so he can pass by. In those stories, God is doing that because he needs to get the people's attention. And for the disciples' part, all of their attention is fixed on the wind and the waves and what they think is a ghost coming toward them. They are terrified. Their first thought was not, oh, it's Jesus walking on the water totally normal. Sidebar. Something of a little bit of a curiosity to me. I I typically read a lot of commentaries in prep each week because I'm a nerd and that's how I roll. Um, But a lot of post-enlightenment commentaries, a lot of biblical scholarship goes into this wild amount of depth as to how this scene of Jesus walking on the water could have unfolded. And basically there are two premises in a lot of these skeptical uh, commentators. The first one is that first century Jews, they were not a particularly superstitious people. And so these stories, uh, they're too ridiculous to be made up. So they had to have seen something. But secondly, the skeptics are also convinced that miracles don't happen. 
So there has to be some sort of rationalistic explanation for this seemingly supernatural phenomena. And so they come up with all of these crazy theories, like there's a sandbar, and whole doctoral dissertations are written on the supposed sandbar, or there's one where the, you know, it's, it's, what really happened is that they thought they were a lot further out because the wind was so strong, they actually were pushed close to the shore, so Jesus was just walking around, it was only about a foot deep, or another one is that Jesus did like some David Copperfield, like optical illusion, right? Really crazy stuff. And it's as though the point that, try, that Mark is trying to make here is that this is a riddle to be figured out rather than a miracle, a mystery to be in awe of. And the irony, this is all a way of suffering from the same hardness of heart that Mark notes in the disciples. They did not understand about the bread. We don't understand about the bread or the walking on water or any of the miracles, really. And so maybe it's just the case that every time our radius of knowledge expands, so does the mystery of God. Anyway, end of sidebar. My, my point in all of this is that they don't have a context for what they are experiencing. They're freaked out by it. They're in a storm. They're not necessarily terrified by the waves. I mean, they're intense for sure, but they are terrified by this figure that comes out walking toward them on the water. And over and over again, Mark is ratcheting up the intensity, one, his readers to see who it is that they are actually dealing with. And it comes to a climax in moments like this when Jesus sees his disciples struggling again and again. And so he goes out to them and says, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. But a better way to translate what is a really awkward phrase in Greek, ego I me, is this one. Take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. And this is the fulcrum of the story. I am is with you. You do not need to be afraid. I am is used all throughout the Hebrew scriptures as the divine name. Going all the way back to Exodus when God first speaks to Moses in the bush that was ablaze but not consumed. And he says, I have heard the cries of my people go out and lead them out of bondage, out of oppression, into their salvation. And Moses asked, well, who am I going to tell them has sent me? He's essentially asking God, what is your name? And God says, Tell them, I am has sent you. The God that is has sent you. And so when this figure goes out walking on the water and comes up to them and says, I am, what they would have heard is, I am the God of your ancestors and I am here with you. You don't need to be afraid. I'm with you in person. And it's not the storm, and it's not me that you need to fear. I am here. And then he gets into the boat, and the storm stops. Scene ends with them going on to the other side, and Jesus blesses all those who come to him, and they are all the way healed. This has to be one of the most you know, well-known, famous stories in the New Testament, and it's, it's given rise to some of the most enduring metaphors for life as a whole. Uh, in particular, when the hard times hit, we compare them to a storm. 
And there's something about this gospel account that we keep coming back to because it it resonates with us on an emotional register. It, It speaks to the felt experience of being human. I mean, often we feel like we are in a storm. We are, especially when we, like the disciples, are being asked to do something that we don't necessarily want to do. And it's hard. We get exhausted. And we're tired and we're in pain and we're wondering, where are you, Jesus? How on earth is this the plan? Or at the very least, can't you just at least, I don't know, space out the suffering and pain just a little bit to give me some room to breathe? There are times when it feels like Jesus is working remotely, watching from the distance on top of a mountain, letting us struggle and strain. And we're calling out, We're in over our heads and we're ready to give up backs to the wall. No way out, no way under, no way around. It's confusing and we don't get it. And the thing is, even if we're not in that season where it feels like the wind is at our back, maybe. We're in a different season and it feels like everything is for us. We still live in an anxious world where there's always a storm on the horizon. Always a Krakatoa waiting to erupt. And if you're anything like me in these seasons where you feel like you are out of control, where the clouds are are dangerous and and ominous and, and dark, and then there are other times when you feel full of faith where you can do anything, only to have the next moment hit when you're back down at the bottom full of doubt and in spite of all of your best efforts, all you can do is wait. You're in that place where the theologian Lewis Smead says, that waiting is the hardest work of hope. And that's just true. And yet it's also in that space where we learn the most critical lessons of courage, of humility, of trust. There are times when we relate to this story. And you may be in one of those seasons now where even on a lovely Labor Day weekend where you've got plans Or you might not feel that way at all, in which case, God bless you. That's awesome. Give it a minute. So what might Jesus be teaching his disciples? Well, like any good rabbi, there are layers to the story. And the first, the most basic layer of this story is that it is the true story of who Jesus is. Disciples don't yet know what we know, that in this mysterious way that defies any sort of easy explanation Jesus shares in our humanity yes but he also shares in God's divinity this is a categorical leap for a first century Jew and the question is well how did they get there well the first was this hint in the language ego I me Jesus using God's name for himself But the other main clue that Mark keeps showing over and over again in his gospel is that Jesus is doing the kinds of things that only God can do, namely calming the storms and calming the seas. There are a long list of scripture passages that speak to this. Uh, Take this line from Job. God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by me, I cannot perceive him. Or any number of the Psalms, your your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Or the prophets, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path through the mighty waters. 
this is just the tip of the iceberg. And of course, Mark does not cite any of these scripture passages, but he is showing you this is who Jesus is. He is way more than just a sage or some sideshow miracle man. He is I am. And that's why we don't need to be afraid. The one who is God has gotten into the boat with us and said, come what may, you will be all right in the kingdom. So that means that this is also a true story about us and about the nature of fear and faith. It's a story about faith, about trusting in Jesus and who he is, which means that it's also about the opposite power of of fear and doubting who God is and doubting his goodness for us. Doubting how the, the lack of trust in God and his good intentions for us, it gives rise to all kinds of fear. And then when we are afraid, the instinct to start to control things kicks in, whether that is circumstances or places or, or events. And then fear and, the, and control, they have this way of kind of teaming up to unleash anxiety in our souls that spills out into the world. And so if we live in a world where there is no God, where there is no one walking on water and we are on our own and no one is coming to save us, then you better hit the gym. Because when the storms come, it is just you against the waves. And that'll work for a while until it doesn't. But if we live in a world where there is a God and this God can actually be known in the person of Jesus, if we live in a world that is full of joy and pain, grief and gratitude under the care of a God who creates and sustains and who hosts us in the world, in this world where where death is not the final word, there are at least two words after that and they sound like resurrection and renewal, then we have no need to fear. Not the storm. Not anything. In the storm, for the disciples, faith and fear show up within moments of each other. And that's that's always how it is with us. And there is this inverse relationship between fear and faith, the circumstances of our lives, the size of the wind and the waves, so to speak. And what Jesus is teaching his disciples is how to grow their faith beyond the circumstances that they are in so that they can come to a more level and steady place. That is what maturity in Christ looks like. And it's easy to miss, you know, when we zoom in on scenes like this one, that this is part of a much bigger story that Jesus is telling. He is growing his apprentices into becoming a non-anxious presence in the world, a, a source of hope and love in a really anxious world. This is actually the second storm story that Mark tells. It's very similar to the first one. They're on the same lake. They're going in the same direction to the same region. And in the first one, Jesus is in the boat, but he is asleep. In the second one, he is out of the boat, nowhere in sight, but he comes to them and gets in the boat. In the first story, he says, oh, you of little faith. In the second story, the ones of little faith, their hearts are hardened. In the first story, he asks, why are you afraid? In the second story, he commands them, do not be afraid. 
And this is what practicing the way of Jesus, what following him, what it's all about, what it looks like, and all the steps in between are just simply an acknowledgement that you cannot start out the gate as a person who is not afraid. He has to teach them. He has to train them. He has to be with them until they are the kind of people who grow in the capacity to not be afraid. And that's what he's been doing all along. And so wherever you are at your stage of of discipleship to Jesus, wherever you are on the path and on your journey, you've always got to be asking the question, how am I cooperating with him? Because he is always working to grow us into people who can become a non-anxious presence in the world the same way that he is a non-anxious presence in the world. And it comes as a result of deep trust in God on the one hand, and out of a deep need to, you know, release the urge to control the mystery, the chaos, uh, all the, the events and circumstances of our lives, the need to manipulate the people to get what we want. So to bring it back to the question at the beginning, how do we become a non-anxious presence in the world? Well, you know, as we look forward to an election season, some of you are looking forward to it. I'm not. <laughs> I, I mentioned in the first service something, true story, like earlier in this week, I got an email from a reputable church leadership uh, publication with a heading, how to prepare your congregation for the second civil war. And like 10 years ago, I would have thought, that's ridiculous. Now I'm just kind of like, I don't how. How do I prepare? <laughs> Practice self-differentiation and non-anxious leadership. <laughs> but as we think about the fall and, and life in the city, as we think about the beginning of the school year or, or jumping back into the workplace, we think about the twittering world of the internet. How do we become this non-anxious presence in an anxious culture? Well, for Mark... It's very simple in concept, but it takes a lifetime to get into your bones. And the first step is just trust Jesus. Not trust that if you follow him, everything's going to go fine. And everything's going to be smooth and peachy. And everything's going to be rainbows and unicorns, right? There's not a hint of that in the gospel. Now trust that he is good. And that he's with you whatever comes. What you want or what you don't want, God's will be done in your life or some other will done to you. Our faith, our trust, our emotional state is not about reacting to the world, but in the words of Ronald Rollheiser, about relaxing into God's presence. So first, trust Jesus, and second, release the need for control to manipulate people, to manipulate circumstances, or the events in your life in order to be okay. And you can do that because you are living with Jesus in the kingdom. He doesn't say to his disciples, chill out, it's not a big deal. He doesn't say, you know, row harder. He says, no matter what, I am with you. Ignatius of Loyola, he described this ceasing of control as gaining a posture of indifference. And he writes in the intro to his spiritual exercises, We should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want to choose 
what better leads to God's deepening life in me. He wrote that 500 years ago. Think about wealth or poverty. Think about the the economic crisis. Everything has the potential of calling forth a more loving response in our life forever with God. And so the question that Jesus is asking his disciples and asking us, how can we open ourselves up to God and understand that he is with us? Because all throughout our lives, we will find that faith and fear and love are at war with one another. And we, when we are scrambling for control, uh, we negate love because we inevitably move to that place where we are trying to negate or manipulate or run over others in order to get what we want rather than to receive life and all of its pain and all of its joy as it comes in the trust that everything has the potential of calling forth a more loving response to us in our life with God forever. Because Jesus gets in the boat, we get to live in the kingdom now. And so ultimately, becoming a non-anxious presence in the world is not about turning down the temperature so we can live more comfortable lives. It is about becoming a people of love in the world. It's about becoming people who are able to step in when others are straining at the oars and speak peace to them. And we become these people who are marked by a deep trust in Jesus because he is I am, because he has power and authority over the wind and the waves, and because he is with us. So we have no need to fear. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are aware that you are present to us, nearer than our next breath. And God, we pray that as the circumstances of our lives, as whatever storms we may be facing, that we would have the courage and the trust to simply know that you are exactly who you say you are. And that even in the things that threaten to overtake us, you are present, deepening in us our life forever with you. May this be so. May this be reflected in the reality of our hearts and in our minds. We ask this in your name. Amen.